Welcome to the Coach's Edge podcast dedicated to teaching, sharing, and learning the game. I'm your host, Steve Kramer of the Coach's Edge. This episode is brought to you by coachesedge.coach, the online resource. We help coaches around the country improve their teams, improve their programs, you know, better coaches, better players, better programs, more success. That's what we're after while saving coaches different times. So be sure to check out our site, coachesedge.coach. Let me know if you have any questions. On this episode, Curtis Pickering, he's done all the things. He's done all the things. He's been a full-time scout for the New Jersey Nets, the Indiana Pacers. He's worked for eight other NBA teams. He's coached overseas in a variety of countries. He's coached college basketball. He's probably forgotten more about the game than I will ever remember. And he was a great interview. And in this one, we really talk about some of the lessons that he's learned from the NBA level that he's passing on to our listeners, especially at the high school coaching level that they can apply to improve themselves, their players, in their program. So special thank you to Coach Pickering for taking the time to be on the Coach's Edge. If you find it beneficial, please positive rating, a review goes a really long way with the Coach's Edge podcast. Let's get to the show. And we are live. I'd like to welcome Kurt Pickering to the Coach's Edge podcast. And for our listeners here, Kurt has a ton of basketball experience at both the NBA level as well as internationally, um, and he's a, a recent move to uh, South Carolina. So talk about a small world as, uh, you know, we were talking, I was talking with some other people, and sure enough, we're navigating this podcast, and you say, hey, well, I live in South Carolina. I'm like, I live in South Carolina, and then it turns out we live less than a half hour yeah. away from each other. Talk about a small, small world, which, which I love. But on this episode, I really want to touch base with, with you on – you had the chance to be an NBA scout. You worked for a variety of teams at the NBA level. And some of the lessons that you've learned that predominantly our high school coaches can take away. So we'll start big picture first, and then we can kind of narrow down some topics. But in general, tell us a little bit about some of the NBA teams that you work for and what some of your responsibilities were working for them. My first opportunity was with New Jersey Nets. Willis Reed was my was my boss and they had me at the college level and some of the CBA uh, games early in the season in case the Nets needed call-ups on 10-day contracts. Uh, then throughout the, going way back to the 80s and the 90s, uh, I, I was always, you know, uh, either either coaching overseas or going to gymnasiums and minor leagues, as we like to call it here in the States, looking at players that are were potential for NBA rosters. So I, I was um, recognized for that. You know, I helped send players to NBA teams. And then my um, uh, last job was with Indiana Pacers, and that was focusing directly on NBA team rosters for trades free agent signings and I really enjoyed that because you know it's it it's sure it's fun to see that high level of play but you're seeing the very best players in the world and uh and you you're looking at all the nuances of them beyond beyond just you know their their game you're you're trying to find out as much intel as you can on them as a player on and off the court not to get too personal but you're trying to find out what kind of people are they? Are they, 
mm-hmm. you know, guys that are stable and, and um, you know, there's some longevity to them. Mm-hmm. So you were at, you know, this, this is pretty recent, you working with some NBA teams. Was there something that maybe the common high school or college coach may not realize that was a big point of emphasis at the NBA level when you were trying to evaluate these players outside of the, the intangibles, right? You talked about the character and something like that, but you know, whether it's a skill base or an athleticism piece, something of that nature. Most of them are, are so uh, highly athletic, but then you take a, uh, a Caruso, you know, that, that uh, was in the Oklahoma city minor league system and the Lakers, my my mentor Bill Burke of the Lakers, you know, that, that he Caruso caught his eye, and next thing you know, he's he uh, is with their with their G League team, and before you know it, he's a big factor in mm-hmm. in their their system, their rotation. Now he's with Chicago, mm-hmm. so a guy like that. Um, he was, you know, he's six five, and he's really kind of a complete player. So I think what you, what I would say to high school coaches is, no matter what their height, I would treat each player um, like a point guard. Mm-hmm. They should try to develop themselves like a point guard. I mean, think of all the great characteristics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you want to be able to score, but can you distribute and make your teammates better? Are you a quarterback out there? You know and what is your composure? You know, I mean, it's so important to to maintain that composure uh, on the floor. So to me, the point guard is no different than Tom Brady. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, and and teammates are really looking to that person mm-hmm. To, mm-hmm. for leadership. So I think you know, don't stereotype your players based either on their size or their talents. If you, if you can develop them like a point guard, I think that's going to take your team further. And that player, possibly, if he could, if he could play college basketball. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's a great takeaway because, I mean, we were talking before we started recording of, you, know, you asked what position I played, and I said I always played point guard in the beginning because I was small, so that's kind of just the way it was going to be. And when I grew a few inches, things got a little bit easier at the small college level at least. And... Uh, so for our high school coaches to be able to apply that and really try to build an all-around skilled player at, the, at those younger levels is only going to benefit them as they continue to, to get older. Um, as you're continuing to work in the NBA, you work for a variety of coaches, you're trying to piece rosters together, you're, you're scouting, whether that's internationally or players in the States at the college level, was there a specific takeaway that you were watching at that level or hearing from, you know, your NBA uh, management saying, man, I wish more high school coaches or, or small college programs applied some of these philosophies. Well, you know, the higher you climb the ladder, it's really on the player. But I guess I would say this, and this is not getting cheesy, but... This is how I would view it with, with high school players. Um, as a person, they're very fragile. Their confidence is very fragile. Even though they may come across street tough, uh, maybe in that team practice, they always exuberate confidence. But inside, 
you know, there's too much going on at that age in their personal life that carries over into that practice, into those games. And the truth is they're very insecure and uh, confidence is wavering. And I think for a, a coach, if he can actually, or he and his coaching staff develop a relationship with those players, those players will work harder for him if, if there truly is a relationship. And, and the fact is, we're not all, as coaches, not all wired that way. Some are the tough guys, you know, and some are just a, a, an X and O guy and doesn't really connect with personalities and uh, relationships. But you're going to take your success further. You're going to take that player and your team's success further if there's relationships that 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 player knows you care about them as a person, mm-hmm. it's they're they're going to succeed much greater on the floor in in the practices in the games could even carry over into their their personal life and you know we could name different players I mean and and that that you know Dennis Rodman very affected by Chuck Daly Dennis Rodman very I I was coaching in in the in Texas at that time when he was playing at Southeastern Oklahoma and there was a family that just uh, adopted him. Mm. So relationships are really important. And when we ignore that or we just, you know, we don't have time, um, then you might not get as great a productivity out of Mm -hmm. that, out of that player. No, I love that. And, and, you know, if that's not your natural strength, maybe I think it comes easier for certain coaches than it does for others. You better find somebody on your staff who, who can. You that's know, exactly that right. And what's players. wrong with, yeah, what's wrong with if you've got a big man coach? I don't know if all high schools can, you know, have, have a larger staff. But if you've got a guy that works with the big men, you've got a guy that works with the, the guards. What's wrong with a coach that's a mentor? Mm-hmm. He's there, but he's really that that um you know that big brother that mentor that you know brings it all together mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and to be able to understand that you know i think one of the most important characteristics of a coach is to not just understand your strengths but to understand your weaknesses and to make sure that other people within you know your program are filling some of those weaknesses for you i when i was coaching when i was an assistant coach in ohio the the head coach there who was he was more analytical than I was. He was a just really elite in some of his strategy and just how he saw the game, and, and I was jealous of that. But what he brought me in for was Steve. He's like, All right, I want you for player development, and he called me the horse whisperer. He's like, you're the horse whisperer to the guys on our team. He's like, you can speak to them in a way that, that I can't, and to be able to have somebody on your roster who fits some of these, these different uh, characteristics that we want within our program is huge um that's a great that's a great piece for for our coaches to remember is there something that the nba level does right as far as the maybe it's the style of play something that they work on something that they do in practice you're saying boy oh boy that would really translate well to making coaches more successful at the younger level you know they have limited time with their practices the players are very talented. Um, 
You don't want to overcoach them at that level. I, I would just say, it, and it, this applies to all levels, repetition, where you don't put a limit on your, your, your players or, or the structuring of the practice, but repetition, you know, at, at different speed levels, uh, what you're trying to do with these players is where it becomes instinctive. So that when it's game action and it's intense, those instincts are natural. They don't have to think about it, and it comes natural, and they're executing, and the team's playing together, they're playing hard, they're playing smart, and they're making good decisions that are from in their instincts that they've, they've been trained repetitiously in the practices. And that's what the NBA does. They keep it simple but but they're also taking the strengths of their players and they've got them in their in in their sweet spots a couple really good takeaways right there one the one you finished on strength of your players and i think for any coach especially you know a public school coach you're not recruiting your players right you're not at the college level you're not at a private school so you might have something that fits well for you but really you need to look at the pieces on your team, find out what their strengths are and put them in a position so that they can see, can succeed. I think that that's huge. And you talked about getting your reps in. So things become natural. They're, they're intense in a game situation. They become instinctive. And you know, I also think from a, a player's standpoint, you talked earlier about, you know, especially a young high school athlete, a little fragile, right? Maybe a little insecure, a lot going on in their life, especially at that time. So from a basketball perspective, yeah, I can take myself back just a few years and think of the practices that I went to and we got a lot of reps in, as you're talking about, and I left that practice and I felt better. I, fe- I went to that practice and even if it was just a short, you know, hour, 15, 90 minute practice, but I left that practice because we got a lot of reps in game application. I left feeling like I became a better player that increased my confidence that improved how I carried myself. And it was because that coach decided during that practice, we were gonna really work on skills. We were gonna work on a lot of things that apply to a game instead of a lot of talking, a lot of standing, a lot of, hey, we're just gonna break down strategy and game plan all day. Yeah, that stuff's important. But as a player, do I leave and feel like I got better? A little bit mentally from an IQ standpoint, but as far as chasing those reps, those are huge, I think, especially for for our younger players. Anything you want to add on to that? Uh, I just think that uh, it's really good. You know, I'm a, I'm a vision guy. You know, I like seeing things up on a board. It, it helps me rather than just someone talking, and they may, they may too, talk too fast for me. So uh, when it's visual, that's helpful to me, and, and then – I played and then you know I'm I'm a dinosaur but I I played for coaches who didn't really give us a practice format of what we were going to do. So we never knew what we were doing from one drill to the next. That's okay, but when I can prepare my mind as to what we're going to do and in that segment, that's helpful to me. It was it would have been to me as a player and I made sure I did that as a coach. Because I want them focused knowing what, what we're transitioning into now 
and, and maybe just briefly talk about it and maybe how we've done in the past, if it's a strength or a weakness as a team, I'm trying to help them understand why we're doing it without, you know, you don't have to explain it too much. You're the coach and you you really have the vision of of the team reaching its full potential. So you don't have to go into it too deep, but it just gives them better understanding. So that's mm-hmm. part of communicating and you know, um, I, I like visual. So I gave players the practice format. They knew what we were going to do. Mm-hmm. And I, I never thought they took advantage of it. And I, I talked to other, you know, coaches about it back in the day. And they thought, oh, the, the, they'll pace themselves in some, you know, the ones they don't want to, maybe they don't want to work hard at. And then they'll, they'll go harder in the ones that is their comfort zone. I didn't look at it that way, mm-hmm. you know. Well, you get a game plan for for the actual game. There's nothing wrong with having a game plan for your practice and sharing it to your kids, right? I think that's that's something that I think a lot of coaches have improved upon in more recent years is being open and being able to share it instead of saying, well, here's our practice plan, but I'm not really telling anybody. <laughs> well, now, I mean, a, a ton of coaches I know are, here's our practice plan, whether it's a sh- short meeting for a couple minutes, say, hey guys, here's what we got planned today, or shoot, you're, you're texting it out and saying, hey, here's the things that we're working on before the kids even get to practice. The chance to get their mind wrapped around that to prepare, I think is really important. And you mentioned you know, being more of a visual learner. And I think that's key for how we communicate to our players, understanding everybody is different. Just like a podcast, like people that are auditory learners, naturally going to love a, a podcast. People that you know are more visual learners, whether it's video, whether it's a YouTube, whether it's going to an in-person clinic, there's different ways that we learn. And we want to make sure that we're hitting the right buttons for our team and for our specific players. Um, Coach, I want to ask a couple specific NBA questions because it's not all the time we get somebody who has the NBA experience that you do on the, on the podcast. What's one of the biggest changes that you saw at the NBA level from when you first started working in there to when you finished? It was always three out, two in. Mm-hmm. And you had great post players and um, back to the basket. And that very much changed. And But this is going way back. But in the 80s, when I took the job in Europe, there was uh, the game was different than the NBA. And I would say every 10 years, you could just kind of see the game evolving. And it's always, the NBA has always, they don't realize it, but the style has, has uh, followed European basketball. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned to you earlier, uh, when I was over there, you know, Drazen Petrovic was, you know, was very much uh, Steph Curry, mm-hmm. you know, um, and he... He so affected the game there to where if he passed it into the postman, if there was one-on-one defense with his uh, post teammate, then they had the liberty to try and score. But if there was any slight double down or even much shading, that postman would make his move to draw that, that, that uh, help side closer and then he kicked it out to Drazen. There was no hesitation. Mm-hmm. And 
that's what we, you know, we don't see postmen down low anymore, but uh, the game has continued to change where now it's, it's five out mm-hmm. and it's screen on the ball and it's the corners are, are very live, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that that's the most difficult area to guard. So you, you often see uh, teams, players in, in the corner just waiting to uh, catch and shoot. And uh, it's a copycat league. Mm-hmm. So when Golden State went small ball and it worked, it was effective, you see where, it's, where it is today. Mm-hmm. And Rick Carlisle, a good friend of mine, he – he told me that back, this is going back six, seven years ago. He said, everybody's going to copy it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what has happened. Yeah, it has happened. Whether you got Steph Curry on your team or not, everybody's bombs away uh, from the three-point line. Right. You mentioned the corners. Everybody's really playing deep and wide. And to get that corner three-point shooter, and if they can play defense, it's almost like a brand-new position that wasn't in the league in the 80s. Right. right. Um, and it's just really interesting to see how the game has evolved. But as you mentioned, coming from a lot of the way that the international game has been played, and that, that was one thing just, you know, in my few years playing basketball overseas and to see over there how much more spread the game was, how much more spacing there was, um, and particularly because, you know, your 6'10 center, your 6'9, you know, four is picking and popping and knocking down a three like it's a free throw. Uh, just really changed the dynamics of the game. We're seeing that at every level, uh, especially at the NBA level, NBA level now. Um, I'm assuming some of this also gets into the analytics of the game. Have you noticed uh, more of a push from that level of being, you know, was that paid attention to as much in the 80s and the 90s? <laughs> analytics? <laughs> was it even uh, not, you know, a word back not then? Not whatsoever. <laughs> not whatsoever. And I'm old school, so, you know, sorry, I'm going to be utterly honest and just say, you know, I, I, I do uh, embrace information and percentages and, and such. But I just read recently a, a, a young uh, scout executive said, well, I, I, you know, I just didn't see that in him because I watched so much video on him. Well, I don't think that's where you get the true hmm. uh, uh, picture and the true uh, evaluation of players hmm. by just watching video. So I'm, I'm not huge on, on video. If I can see... A player live? Yeah. Oh, no I question. Test. Right. Yeah. And I know it goes, uh, 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 analytics goes further into that, but everything is so digital now. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, I really trust my eyes and my mind mm-hmm. uh, with what I see on a basketball court live. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I agree with you 100%. I think that, you know, it's, it's easy to plug numbers into a spreadsheet and it spits out, okay, who's the best player, who's the best fit, but that doesn't take into account so many actual aspects of the game. And as much information as we have that you could put into a computer system, all the things that you can see and evaluate with your eyes are really impossible to quantify any other way. And uh, that's really the value of being able to you have the skill that you do of being able to see certain players and be able to say, okay, like a, a Caruso, for example, that's somebody who's going to be able to excel at the NBA level. Maybe when uh, the majority of people 
didn't see that happening. Uh, it's, it's just very, it's a reason why there's always value in being able to see players with the eye test, see players. Well, I think there's, there's one other word I would use that if, if you really study the game, and I'm talking old school study the game, there's a word that I've always used, and it's called feel. You really have a feel for that mm-hmm. player. And, mm-hmm. and you're, you're watching all his mannerisms. You're watching how he interacts with his coach, with his teammates, with his opponents, and definitely with the game officials and the fans. Mm-hmm. So, you know, because, uh, you know, if he's really affected uh, positive or negatively by those elements, you, you really want to know that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Has there been any other thing at the NBA level that you say, boy, that's really a big difference maker from a skill standpoint. You talked a little bit about the, the bigs, and, and so let's talk about that for a second. How have some of the bigs in the game and, and their skill set shaped into the players they are now? Or is there something that you're saying, boy, if we had more post-play back in the game, maybe we could be more effective in certain situations? Well, certainly, um, you know, mismatches are key. And you know, just like Porzingis, you know, I've seen where he's in the mid-post area and there's a 6'4 guy guarding him. And, you know, what I always loved about Shaq, and I could be tough on Shaq too, and I saw him play a lot, but what the Lakers did back in back in the day is he would catch the ball outside the paint. He'd throw it back, but then he'd turn and walk his yeah, man reversed. into the paint and quickly spin open, and that guard knew or whoever had the ball hit him back again, and wow, he was unstoppable there mm-hmm. and, and going to the free throw line a lot too. So um, I, I think the game is so fast now that players, maybe it's difficult for them to slow their mind. There is a shot clock, I know that. But, uh, and they do recognize mismatches, and so many of them, the screening is for that reason. But when you're asking about post play, I, I think there's so many opportunities to take advantage of that. And go ahead and settle for two. Mm-hmm. You don't have to hit a home run every time yeah. and with the three ball. And obviously it's going to affect that opponent who's having to guard him it it he could get he could get into foul trouble mm-hmm. it could affect him on on the other end on mm-hmm. offense cuz he's had to work so hard defensively mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so i i think you know they used to say there's you know passing is a lost art i think there's a you know lost art in um some post up where you know it it really puts the hurt on that opponent mm-hmm. Now you mentioned some great reasons why that can be very effective. And with so many defenses switching, make them pay. Make them make pay. pay. T- take the mismatch down to the post instead of, you know, settling for, you know, if you're seven foot and they're six six and you're settling shooting threes, well, that's a six inch advantage that you know, as you mentioned, you can wear them down, you can take advantage of of the mismatch. And because of all the switching and the perimeter shots. I just think that post-defense isn't something that we've practiced as much either. And so as a defensive player, 
you know, in the 90s, 80s, so on and so forth, players were better at playing post defense. They had to do it every single day. Now you take a defender down in the post, a heck of a lot more uncomfortable there. As you mentioned, more likely to, to draw fouls. And in my, my opinion, your shot percentage is going to go up because the floor is still spaced and you're playing against somebody who isn't used to defending in the post. It's, it's win-win in a lot of ways. You get some inside buckets, now things are going to even open up a little more on the perimeter with some of those inside-out inside out touches, which, which I love. Um, coaches, we finish out this uh, first of two different interviews uh, with you. I just want to leave the, the last word to you. First, thanks for taking the time. To, sure. to be on the podcast. I know we could talk for, for hours because uh, I feel like we're just scratching the surface of some different talking points with the NBA. Um, to our coaches out there, uh, we hope that you find this episode beneficial. Uh, but Kurt, I'll leave the, the last word to, to you. Anything or any tips of advice for our coaches that are listening? I would just say again, relationships, relationships are important. Uh, communicating. Uh, you know, you, you love it when your player's aggression level goes up. So I, I would, you know, a good friend of mine, Gary Colson, who coached at Pepperdine, New Mexico State, and uh, Fresno State, very close friend of Jerry West, he teaches aggression, and he has drills that he teaches. And uh, he and I, we've gone over those before, and... Uh, you know, aggression, everybody's wired differently. And if you have a player that it looks like he's not playing hard, it may be just, you know, there's a lack of intensity mentally. Or that kid, he's holding back. I don't know if, what kind of fear of failure, whatever it could be. But I th the, the word aggression, if if a coach would just, focus on that. How can I make my players uh, raise their level? They're going to, they're, you know, that's going to change the, the game with their team, be, especially practices mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. It's going to make everybody better. Mm -hmm. no, I love that. And it's, it's a heck of a lot easier to have a player who's aggressive. You try to hold them back a little bit than one who's not aggressive at all. And you feel like you got to push them, push them, push them, push them. Uh, so to be able to encourage uh, being aggressive and making some stake mistakes because you're being aggressive because either way we're going to make mistakes, right? But right. You know, the, what, what I always say at our camps is the biggest mistake you can make is if you don't make any because you're not being aggressive. You're not trying to get out of your comfort zone. And so we're really trying to push that and encourage that. It's a great piece of advice to leave with our coaches. So coaches, thanks for checking out the Coach's Edge podcast. Uh, we appreciate you. And if you haven't already, make sure you check out uh, our other episode with, with Kurt as he shares some of the unique basketball experiences that he's had around the globe. Thanks for listening and get after it today. Recording stopped. Oh, oh, man. I can turn the